Okay, so now let's get into God's Word together. Would you find the Gospel of Mark, please, either in your Bible or your Bible app, however you get into God's Word, find the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. Would you join me, please? And as you're doing that, have you ever had the experience where you're just craving some Chick-fil-A, you know? And uh, for me, it's the, the special deluxe sandwich. If, you know, if you're being bad, the waffle fries. If you're being good, kale chip salad. Uh, and then you wash it down, of course, with a milkshake. Anyway, <laughs> you're on your way to Chick-fil-A because you're craving Chick-fil-A, and you get close, and you see the store from a distance, and there's nobody in line. And then you get excited, right? Because that never happens, and people who battle impatience, we get excited about things like that. And then you get closer to the store, and you realize there's nobody there. Why? It's Sunday. Oh, how, how many of you ever? Okay. And so then you're hungry and you're angry, right? <laughs> so we have this new term in our culture where we put hungry and angry together. What's it called? Angry. That's right. You're hangry. Okay. In this passage we're going to look at today, at least at first glance, it appears that Jesus gets hangry. It's true. But I think if we keep on reading, there's a little more uh, to the story, all right? So look with me. Here we are in Mark chapter 11, and we'll begin at verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Okay, let's stop there. Let's not miss this or pass over this. Jesus became hungry. Why? Because he was fully human in addition to being fully God. You need to understand this about Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. And so when he left heaven, like we just sang about, when he left heaven, was born in the dirt in a manger, he took on humanity. And he willingly experienced the uh, physical limitations of our humanity. He got tired in the Garden of Gethsemane before the cross. He got stressed. And he got hungry. So Jesus gets, let's not miss this. He gets hungry. And so then what does he do? Verse 13. He goes to get something to eat. Seeing from a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. <laughs> that looks like Jesus got hangry. To me. And his disciples were listening. Okay. Now, I read that and I'm like, Jesus just got hangry at that fig tree, right? And that, and if I'm being honest, it seemed a little out of character. It seemed a little abnormal to me. It's like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Because when you think about it, he used his divine power over and over and over and over and over again to give life. All of his miracles, all of his healings, even his resurrection was to give life. But here's an episode in his ministry where he brought death. I can only think of one other time where he did this, and that's where he cast the demons into the herd of pigs. They went down the cliff into the water and drowned. And then there's this one. The one who created the fig tree now cursed the fig tree. Hmm. Hmm. So what's going on here? Okay, so I had to put this picture up of a fig tree if you've never seen one before. And look at that sky. Don't you think that the Lord just shows off sometimes, you know? Okay, so here's a fig tree. So you can see from a distance, it's a fig tree and leaf. You can't really tell if it has figs on it or not. So you get closer and closer and closer to it. And then you get close enough to see no figs. It's 
all leaves and no fruit. And so, beloved, I think what's going on here, in part, most Bible scholars would agree that this is actually a metaphor uh, of an indictment against the people of God. Because, quite frankly, beloved, they're all leaves and no fruit. Let me show you from the past. This is a, a metaphor that God used with the people all the way back in the book, uh, book of Micah, chapter 7. This is what he said. What misery is mine? I am like the one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of a vineyard, and there is no cluster of grapes to eat. And here we go. None of the early figs that I crave. Well, what's he talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Verse 2. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Because God had called his people to himself, and he called them to himself that they may go and bear fruit. But instead, all his people were doing was showing leaves instead of bearing fruit. They were all leaves and no fruit. In other words, they were all religion. They were all practicing religion. They were all doing their rituals. But there was no fruit, no true righteousness. And my beloved, this also is an exhortation for us. Let's not just point fingers. Let's look at the mirror. Because Jesus has called us to the same thing as followers of him. Look at this passage in John, Gospel John 15. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So God's called us, followers of Christ, to the same thing, to go and bear fruit, to build the kingdom of God, to make God smile, to draw people to Jesus, to make your life count for eternity, bearing fruit. And, and if I'm just being as loving and as honest as I can be, when the Lord leads us to a passage like this, it must be because someone listening this morning, if you are just being honest with yourself and honest with God, you would say, you know what? I've been too much leaf and not enough fruit. I've been too much presentation and not enough production. I've been too much show and, and not enough do. And if that's you this morning, this passage, it's a warning. It's a word of exhortation. And maybe if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you this morning, maybe even a word of conviction that, you know what? You get one shot at life. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face justice. You get one shot at life. Jesus is saying to you, make it count for eternity. Stop playing church. Get in the flow of worship, connect, serve, and multiply, and mean it. Do it from the heart. All right? Okay. Now, there's a key line in this passage right at the end where it says, and his disciples were listening. In verse 14, and his disciples were listening. Now, why is that key? Well, because his disciples didn't always listen, right? All of us who are parents and teachers know they don't always listen right? And his disciples didn't always listen. But this one, I, th I think maybe when they heard Jesus say this, their ears perked up kind of like mine. It's like, huh, that's a little unusual. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? And the, it, it struck a chord with them. They remembered it so that, look, if that's the only story or part of the story that we had, um, we could be left with lots of questions. But fortunately for us, there's more to the story. So as Paul Harvey would say, now the rest of the story. All right? The rest of the story, if you skip down, is in verse 20. Here's the rest of the story. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. 
And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. So, okay, Jesus turns this whole curious episode with a fig tree into a major object lesson on effective prayer. Hey, how's your prayer life? Could it use a little tune-up? Could it use a little boost this morning? We're going to see some tips to effective prayer. Effective prayer is prayer that moves the hand of God. Would you agree with me on that? Okay, so here are at least two keys in this passage on effective prayer. First, beloved, we need to pray with faith. This is what Jesus says. Two times in this passage, he says we need to pray believing. And then right here he says that we need to pray with no doubt in our hearts in verse 23. No doubt in our hearts. Okay, so the word doubt in the New Testament, the original language is Greek. And the Greek word, it comes from two words, meaning divided judgment. So when you doubt, you have divided judgment. You're not sold out. You're, you're split. So I, I, maybe you've had this experience too, but I'm thinking about my daughter when I think about this. She's graduating from college and she's applying to all these grad schools. And because she's awesome, uh, she gets accepted, right, to all these uh, PhD programs. And so now she's got a choice, but she's divided in her judgment. Well, I could go to University of Texas, but it's in Austin and it's super liberal. Or I could go to Texas A&M. She got accepted there too, which is a great school, but it's in College Station and uh, kind of an ugly campus, if I'm being honest. Anyway, uh, it's true. Love the school. I could go to Duke or I could go to North Carolina, all these different places, right? Well, then just a couple of weeks ago, after just months of deliberation and divided judgment where she could go, she finally was like, you know what? I'm going to North Carolina. And so she signs the commitment paper. Let's everybody else know I'm done. Here's where I'm going. Now I'm single-minded and I'm focused and I'm going this direction. And we bought the t-shirts, right? <laughs> Signed and bought the t-shirts. See, beloved, that's faith. Faith takes the word of God, signs the commitment letter, buys the t-shirt. Are you with me? Okay. That's faith. That's belief. That's believing prayer. It signs up, all right? Okay, now this, Jesus said, praying like that can move mountains. Verse 22, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be granted to him. Praying like this can move mountains. Now let's talk about mountains. Mountains historically are a, a cultural metaphor for these giant big obstacles that are in front of us or difficulties that are in front of us, right? That's a mountain. We still use it in our culture. Man, like some of you students, I've got this mountain of homework. For those of us who work, I've got this mountain of paperwork I've got to do. For those of us who've made maybe some bad financial decisions, I've got this mountain of debt in my life. Well, this has been true for generations. Matter of fact, God used the same metaphor with his people back in the 6th century when they were exiled and coming back to the homeland. And this is the book of Zechariah, chapter 7. 
He's talking to Zerubbabel, who's a political religious leader. And Zerubbabel, when you think of Zerubbabel, if you don't know your Bibles in the Old Testament, think of rubble. Zerubbabel, rubble. All right? So Zerubbabel is leading the exiles back to the homeland to rebuild the rubble of Jerusalem, especially the temple. A huge monumental mountain of a task. But here's God's word to Zerubbabel. This is the word of the Lord saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. Hooah. All right. What are you, great mountain? God says, before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring out the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. I love that. See, faith can move mountains because God can move mountains. It's about the grace of God. The grace of God is God's loving and powerful initiative on behalf of his people. And so when we pray in faith without doubting, when we pray believing, our prayers can move mountains because God's can, God can move mountains. And when we shout grace, grace, God can take that mountain of challenge, that mountain of difficulty in front of us and turn it into a plane. So may I exhort you, my brothers and sisters, if you've got a mountain in front of you, pray in faith and ask the grace of God to turn it into a plane. If you've got a mountain of anger in your life, shout grace to it and watch God turn it into a plane. If you've got a mountain of bitterness in your life, shout grace to it and watch God turn it into a plane. If you've got a mountain, oh, of addiction in your life, Shout grace to it and watch God turn it into a plane. If you've got a mountain of fear in your life, shout grace to it and watch God turn it into a plane. If you've got a mountain of anxiety in your life, shout grace to it and watch God turn it into a plane. That's what praying and faith can do. Somebody say amen. Now, alongside of this truth, I feel compelled that we need to lay alongside a couple of other passages in the scripture where Jesus taught us how to pray effectively. All right? They're both in the Gospel of John. Let me put these up on the screen for you. First, uh, we need to pray uh, in Jesus' name. Sorry, we got to skip all that. I'm just going to, thanks, Lynn. We're just going to cut through all that for time's sake. So here's in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. So we've talked, Jesus said, pray in faith, and God will hear and answer. All right? But then alongside, there are two passages in the Gospel of John where he, he teaches us how to pray in an effective manner. First, he says, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, what's the key to getting God to do whatever we ask? If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There's the key. We need to pray in Jesus' name. Now, what does that mean? Lord, give me a Ferrari. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think that's what he means, right? Although Ferraris are awesome. Okay. I think, now let's think about it. If I were to do something in your name, I would genuinely do my very best to try to do that thing in a way or in a spirit in which you would do it. i try to represent you well if I were to do it in your name. And you would do the same for me. I think that's the spirit of this. So to pray in Jesus' name means to, to sort of capture his spirit in our prayer life. To pray, real simply, to pray as Jesus would pray. To pray along the heart line and with the character, with the intent that Jesus would pray. Make sense? So it would help you then to know how Jesus prayed. 
If you've never read the Gospels with an eye looking to how Jesus prayed, maybe if I were to give you a homework assignment this week, here's what I'd love for you to do. I would just love for you to read John chapter 17. We call it Jesus' high priestly prayer. The entire chapter of John 17 is Jesus praying. It's just Jesus' prayer. You go through and you read the prayer of Jesus to the Father. And I think what you'll see is the overriding theme of Jesus' prayer life is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to see his Father glorified. He wants to see the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the overriding theme of it. That's how to pray in Jesus' name. Pray like that, and the hand of God will move. So, not just to pray in Jesus' name, but then one other passage in the very next chapter in John 15. Here's what he said. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. So another way to pray effectively, to move the hand of God, two things in this passage I see. One is we need to remain in Christ. Other translations say abide in him. And then the second thing is his words need to remain in us. Okay, so let's talk about both of those. What does it mean to remain in Christ or abide in Christ? Kind of to set up camp there. So I know a lot of y'all like to go camping. So I, I know that you might think I'm a weirdo by telling you this, but you know what? I'm getting older. I don't care. There are young people, there aren't a whole lot of perks about getting older, but this is one of them. We don't care what you think about us anymore. <laughs> Amen. Old people, where are you at? Who's with me? Okay. <laughs> we hurt everywhere, but we don't care what you think about us. All right. So when I, when I pray, I often pray for you. And when I spend extended time in prayer, I will picture myself mentally sort of camping out in the throne room of God. I'm just sort of at the feet of his throne. I don't look up to God. This is as close to glory as I'll ever get, but I'm just sort of at his feet and I want to just camp out there. I want to be near him because I think the nearer we are to God, the closer we get to his heart. The closer we get to his heart, the more we will pray along his heart lines. And the more we pray along his heart lines, the more our prayers will be answered. That's abiding in Christ, making your home in his heart so that you would pray as he would pray. But then the second thing, and, and if I'm being honest, this has helped me probably more than anything in my prayer life, and that's to have his words abide in you. One of the reasons I love to memorize scripture, a habit that I would love for you to form in your life if you don't have it already, memorizing the word of God, hiding the word of God in your heart. One of the reasons I love to do it is because I'm a man and I'm tempted. And the Bible says, how does a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Having the word of God in your heart is a good sword to battle temptation. Young men, that's for you. But another reason I love to memorize scripture is it's helped my prayer life more than anything. If you need help with your prayer life, here's what I would encourage you to do. Pray this. Pray the word. You want God's hand to move? You want to see God's hand move? Pray the word. Pray the promises of God. Pray the truth of God back to him. Okay? So let's put all this together then. Jesus said we need to pray in faith and he can move mountains. But he also said we need to pray in his name as if he were praying along the, the heart lines, if you will, of Jesus. We need to pray abiding in Christ near his heart. And then we need to pray his word. Pray the word. And then 
Finally, Jesus said last verse is we need to pray with forgiveness. Pray with forgiveness. Here's verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father is in, who is in heaven will also forgive you for your offenses. Okay. Also, to have an effective prayer life, we cannot be harboring unforgiveness in our hearts. We have to have, if you will, purged or, or clean hearts. We have to pray with forgiveness. Whenever you stand praying, Jesus said, one of the postures of prayer is standing. Whenever you stand praying, you've got to get rid of whatever unforgiveness is going on in your heart. Because I, I just straight up, I think unforgiveness hinders our prayer life. Do you know that there are things that we can do and say that will actually hinder um, the flow of communion between us and God? I'll give you another example in the New Testament. This is in 1 Peter 3, 7. This is a word for all of you who are husbands. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. In other words, we're bigger and stronger. I've been around the globe. That's universally true. That's just how God made us. So instead of being all big and all that and shoving her around, here's how God wants you to treat your wife. Show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, if you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, and if you don't show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, your prayers will be hindered. There is a direct correlation between our personal conduct and our prayer life. There's a direct correlation between what's going on, or I'd say the condition of our heart and the condition of our prayer life. Our prayers can be hindered, the Bible says. I think of it like my heart disease. Some of you know I got heart disease. I have what's called arthrosclerosis, uh, where, and again, I'm not a doctor, but basically because of poor diet and um, stress and genetics, I have a plaque buildup along the uh, walls of my arteries. Now, your arteries are what take, takes blood from your heart to your organs, all right? Your body's organs really like blood. When they don't get blood, bad things happen. So your arteries take blood to your organs and your body. And when you have plaque buildup inside of your arteries, the flow of blood is hindered. And then, unfortunately, like in my case, it can be built up so much that the flow of blood even stops. And then really bad things happen. I hope your arteries are on the left. Mine's on the right. So the flow of blood is hindered because of plaque. Well, here's what Jesus is saying. Unforgiveness is plaque. Having unforgiveness in your heart, it's plaque buildup. The way I've seen it work as a pastor in many people's lives over the years is you suffer some kind of an injustice or some kind of hurt. And it, naturally, you want to hold on to that hurt. There's a threat of vengeance in there, of retribution. And you hold on to that, and that, that hurt turns into anger, and then you keep holding on to that anger, and that anger turns into bitterness. And bitterness, as the Bible says, is a root that grows deep to cause trouble and defile many and unforgiveness then in your heart it just hinders the flow of communion with God so if you really want to pray with effective prayer if you really want to pray to see the hand of God move you have to do what Jesus taught us to do when he taught us to pray you remember this all the way back in Matthew the Lord's prayer how did he teach us to pray forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. That's how he taught us to pray. We have to pray with forgiveness. So just, may I ask you a personal question? Is there any unforgiveness in your heart this morning? Are you harboring anything against anyone? May I exhort you as your brother just to pray as Jesus taught you to pray. God, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. So my brothers and sisters, let me sum it all up, all right? In life, don't get hangry, all right? Instead, pray believing. Pray big. Pray with faith. Pray with forgiveness. And watch the hand of God move, turning your mountains into plains. Amen? All right, let's pray. Let's spend some time in prayer together. And so, indeed, Abba, Father, we really want to capture the spirit of Jesus this morning as we pray. And so we come to you as our Father, just like he did. And the cool thing is, we can do that because of the spirit you've given us. Your Bible says that you've not given us a, a spirit that makes us slaves again to fear. Rather, you've given a spirit uh, that has brought about our adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So, Lord, in the spirit of Christ and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we call out to you, Abba, Father. Lord, we want to see your hand move in this world. We want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So first, Lord, to do that, I pray that you'd purge our hearts of anything that's in there that doesn't belong. If anyone listening has been harboring anything in there, hurt, anger, rage, malice, revenge, bitterness, fear, anxiety. Father, forgive us and remove it. Oh, you can do that. Purge us. Therefore, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, do that now, please. And now with clean hearts and open hands, Father, we pray in agreement and in faith and in Jesus' name, abiding in your presence, hiding your word in our heart. And we're asking you to move mountains for your glory. There are some in our church who are battling discouragement, despondency, hopelessness because of what's going on in our culture. Father, turn that mountain into a plain. We shout grace to hopelessness. We shout grace to despondency. We shout grace to discouragement. We shout grace to despair. Father, there are some in our church who are struggling with division, distance or separation in their homes and in relationships. Father, in faith and in Jesus' name, we shout grace to that. We shout grace to division. We shout grace to separation. We shout grace to re revenge. Turn those mountains into a plain. Redeem, reconcile, restore for your great namesake.
nor there are some who are battling addiction. Oh, it's, it's had power over them for a long time. And because of it, some people are being all leaves and no fruit. It's got a hold on them. It's hindering them. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we shout grace to that addiction. Turn that addiction from a mountain into a plain. In Jesus' name, and for his great name's sake, set that person free. You are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been set free by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are free. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. God, turn that mountain into a plain and help that brother or sister live in freedom. I, you can do it. Please do it. Because you love them. Because we're praying in faith and in Jesus' name, amen.